morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there. Would encourage you to check out. Follow the show on Instagram at Here Comes the Pain Pod. That's at Here Comes the Pain P O D. Follow me on Twitter at Payne DC. That's at P A Y N E D C. It's been a little bit. Glad to be back with you. Got a couple of things to share here on this episode. We're going to have some thoughts off the top about what we just witnessed with the election. Um, you know, I, I think we all now know Election Day is not just a one day event. It became a, a week long affair, almost like Carnival uh, last week. So we'll talk a little bit about Election Day. Um, also, in this episode, we're going to hear from a leader in the healthcare community about one of the primary issues that was a focus in the most recent election, which is healthcare. We're going to hear from Meg Murray from the Association of Community Affiliated Plans. Really good discussion with her there. Would encourage you to listen for. And a little bit of news about the podcast, just sharing you um, on some updates about how often you can expect to hear from the podcast and just some general uh, heads up about what our schedule will be as we advance past Election Day and we look towards 2021. But I wanted to start, obviously, by talking about what everybody's talking about, which is the election last week and Election Day. And the big news from it, obviously, is that we have a new president, or at least we have a president-elect. Joe Biden was successful, um, and he unseated Donald Trump, Donald Trump becoming, I believe, only the third one-term president since World War II, I believe, I think. If I have my history correct here, we had George H.W. Bush in 1992 who lost to Bill Clinton. And we had Jimmy Carter who lost to uh, Ronald Reagan in 1980. So um, some history from just presidential nerd level history type stuff. Um, also, obviously, big implications for the current state of politics. We know what happened in the Senate. Um not quite the the night that Democrats were hoping for, but still a good night. And I'm going to talk about that as well. Just some of the expectations and the game we play around, you know, what defines a win and what defines a good night. I want to dig into that a little bit. Obviously, there were some unexpected losses in the House for Democrats. Democrats still hold power in the House, but it wasn't quite the successful night that I think a lot of Democrats were hoping for. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But Again, the big news here, Joe Biden will be the 46th president of the United States. Um, Listen, I am a Democratic political uh, operative strategist staffer. Uh, You know, I've worked in Democratic politics for 15 years. That's how I've cut my teeth. So it's pretty clear who I wanted to win this election, who I voted for. But just from a macro level, I want to just kind of just share some thoughts about what happened. And it seems like what happened was a couple of things, okay? For starters, it, it's pretty clear. And by the way, at the, at the time of what we're discussing here in terms of the election, we know that Joe Biden is, is going to win Pennsylvania. That's been called by the elections um, over the last four, uh, rather, that's been called by the networks, excuse me, over the last 48 hours. We know that Biden is poised to win in Arizona. Depending on who you talk to, that's either certain or near certain. Um, most places have called Nevada for Biden as well. And Georgia appears to be a narrow Biden victory. There probably will be a recount there. There's some other stuff going on in Georgia as well with the uh, the runoff elections that we're expecting in both of those Senate races, which none of the candidates got to 50%. And so because of that, 
you go to a runoff where um, that will be in early January. So it's going to be an interesting two months in Georgia overall between the recount that's going on in the general election and also in the runoff that's going on in the two Senate elections. So that's the state of the race right now. Joe Biden has enough votes to clinch the Electoral College win. He has uh, somewhere between a, I think, a three and a half and four million popular vote lead with Donald Trump. It might get up to five million when all the votes are in. That'll be more than two million um, than what Hillary Clinton beat Trump by in 2016. Of course, Hillary Clinton lost the Electoral College, but just kind of given all the all the stats here off the top as we know it. But Okay, so what happened? Well, Joe Biden needed to be able to pull together some version of that Obama coalition. And when you think about the Obama coalition, I think what most people think about it as is independence, uh, you know, uh, minority communities, be it Latinos, African-Americans, women, suburban voters, young voters. That's the Obama coalition, and that's essentially what Biden was able to pull back together, or at least he was able to pull enough of it back together to win. Did he match Obama's numbers in in 2012 and 2008? We obviously have to wait for all the votes to come in and figure out what the final tallies are. It looks like he is going to near that. It's probably going to look a little bit closer to Obama's 2012 win against Mitt Romney than Obama's 2008 win against McCain. You know, just by, you know, modern political standards, the 2008 Obama victory over McCain is viewed as a blowout, right? Like traditionally, we would think of blowouts as like Lyndon Johnson over Goldwater in 64, or we would think of Reagan over Mondale. Um, We would think of, gosh, I'm trying to I'm trying to just think back. We would think of Nixon, um, you know, in, in 1972. We would think of those types of victories as being blowouts. But really, like Barack Obama with like an eight point win over John McCain in 2008 and really having a mandate. I think uh, Obama uh, left with 59 votes in the Senate, had a majority in the House. It was a clear Democratic mandate from the electorate. Right. That's what we would think of as like a dominant modern era victory. Biden's is going to near that. It's probably not going to get quite to that where it's that definitive. It'll be over 50%, which is a big deal. And it's a big threshold in politics right now. So, you know, Biden was able to pull back enough of that coalition together from Obama. And I think really importantly, the biggest and and brightest, the darkest blue part of that coalition were African-American voters. I mean, and bottom line, if you if if someone is asking you, if someone came from another planet and said, how did Joe Biden become the 46th president of the United States? It's black voters. And it's like not even close. And that's the that is the key factor here. Black voters chose Joe Biden in the primary. Right. Even when Biden necessarily didn't perform that well in the early three states in Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada, Biden underperformed in all of those states and his campaign really looked in peril. You know, Joe Biden's campaign really and truly was built for the general. It was, it was, it was always a candidacy that made more sense as a general election candidacy than a primary candidacy because the primary is all about playing to the base of the party. And Joe Biden was not set up to be a darling of the base of the party. He became a darling of the base of the party because He became the standard bearer of the party. And now, of course, he is the leader of the party and he is the leader of the free world. So 
you know, that takes on a different shine to it. But at that time, nobody is thinking of Joe Biden as kind of the darling of the Democratic Party because there are shinier figures out there. There's the Elizabeth Warrens of the world. There's the Pete Buttigieg's of the world. You know, Cory Booker, Julian Castro, Kamala Harris, who is going to be obviously in a piece of history I shouldn't have waited this long in the podcast to say. She'll be the first African-American, first um, woman, first uh, South Asian woman, uh, South Asian person to be in that office of the vice presidency, which is a big deal. And we're going to talk about it a little bit as well. But so Biden was always built more for the general. And I think we saw that. I don't think that campaign was very good in the primary. And, and I actually I, I don't say that with any malice. They just weren't. They were slow to respond to things. It did not feel like they had their finger on the pulse of the party, but they did have their finger on the pulse of the electorate and they understood where the country was. And I do have to give a lot of credit to the Biden team for not veering off script. They always stayed true to who they were and they always stayed true to what their core thesis was of why Joe Biden was the person to bring together the Democratic Party and why he was the person eventually to bring together the country. But again, Black voters saw that before anybody. Black voters are the block of voters that said, this ends here and now. And by the way, and I'm talking, I I always hate to kind of speak in those kind of general terms because no group of voters is a full monolith. Even in that strong block of African-American voters, there are people like me who Joe Biden wasn't my first choice, right? And there are people who um, maybe kind of, just voted for Biden because they felt like it was their duty, but they weren't enthusiastic about it. And there were some that were more enthusiastic about it. But the bottom line is African-American voters in huge numbers and historic numbers came together and decided this is the candidate that can beat Joe Biden and the re- rather and, they, and that can beat Donald Trump. Excuse me. And the reason why they made that decision about why Biden could beat Trump was because they figured There's no other candidate in that field that we can trust to be able to deal with all of the things that Donald Trump is going to throw at them. And there's no other candidate that's going to be Teflon to all the things that Trump is going to throw at them. So whether it's other historic candidates like Pete Buttigieg is the first LGBT um, candidate, he he, he would have been obviously right, uh, you know, uh, on a national ticket. you know, Kamala Harris, she's obviously making history as VP, but she was trying to make history as president. Um, obviously, talk about Elizabeth Warren, same deal. Cory Booker um, would have been a historic candidacy also. But Biden, African-American voters decided, was the person to put forward because they did not trust their friends and their neighbors and the people who they share communities with to be able to deal with anything other than Joe Biden. And that's that's a tough statement and that's hard for people to confront. But like that's true, right? Like African Americans did not trust white voters to be able to deal with anything but Joe Biden. And so I think that is the story of why Joe Biden was chosen by African American voters to carry the mantle of the party. And African-American voters never wavered through controversies. He said something on Hot 97 with uh, with Charlotte, rather iHeart Radio, Charlemagne um, Breakfast Club. He, he, he made comments in other settings that were less than ideal about 
African-American voters, the history, obviously, with his vote on the crime bill and, um, you know, all of those types of things. Right. African-American voters never wavered because they said the existential crisis is Donald Trump and we need somebody who can beat Donald Trump. And Joe Biden proved to be that person. So that's the primary. And then you get to the general African-American voters delivered this election for Joe Biden, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Milwaukee, Atlanta. Those five cities delivered this election for Joe Biden. Because I'm telling you, Hillary Clinton underperformed in Milwaukee in 2016. And there's been a lot of research into that. There's been a lot of good reporting and and, uh, good looking back analysis about what happened. There were just neighborhoods in Milwaukee that just didn't show up. There's a 2017 uh, New York Times story. It might have been late 2016. Um, but uh, right after, you know, Trump beat Hillary in 2016, there was a lot of journalism into what happened there. And there was kind of a landmark story about the neighborhoods in Milwaukee that just didn't show up. Well, that didn't happen this time. And it's because African-American voters said enough of this. The African-American voters just said enough, enough of Trump, enough of, you know, all the all the destabilizing actions of the Trump presidency and all of his sycophants, all the people around him. African-American voters stood up and said, this stops here, this stops now. And I think that will be the story written about this election. Obviously, we've got a lot of data to go through and there will be exit polls and there will be you know, analyses when all the votes are counted. Um, Obviously, we know that, you know, these vote counting and media counting, uh, media organizations that do vote counting and vote tabulations and things of that nature, a lot of times is the best estimate. But, you know, their job is to be right on this stuff. There's really only one time that they've been really wrong about it, and it's 2000 with Florida. But for the most part, these networks are right. It looked like we might've had that situation in, in Arizona this cycle, but it didn't, it, it doesn't appear that it's going to happen. It appears that Biden is going to hold on and that, you know, Fox and the Associated Press are going to be proven to be right about their relatively early call of Arizona. Probably they made a mistake in calling it so early, but it does appear it's going to hold up. But, you know, Joe Biden is going to be the president and he called this out in his speech over the weekend laying out what his agenda would be, laying out his governing uh, agenda and laying out his governing style. He called out African-American voters. You've always had my back and I'll never forget it. And I'll always have your back. And that's because he knows very well that this only happened last week because of African-American voters. So that's what happened. And now we jump to, well, what does it all mean? Well, Based on how people like to think about, you know, in a very reductive nature, well, you know, is this a mandate and how's Joe Biden going to govern and do Democrats have the ability to kind of seek this relatively ambitious agenda, right, of, you know, making fixes to Obamacare to strengthen it and, um, you know, leveling out the economic policies so that we level the playing field for the wealthy and the middle class and the working class, right? Like, you know, making sure that the wealthy are paying their fair share, all of that, that Joe Biden went on. But the question becomes like, did he win on it enough? And, and that's the, the parlor game that's going on right now. There are people who are trying to spin what happened in this election as a, oh, well, Democrats were expected. You know, I kind of, I'm a football fan. 
I say Democrats were expected to win and Joe Biden was expected to win by two touchdowns and he won by two field goals. And so people might want to try to frame that as a as a loss. I actually think he was favored to win by two touchdowns and he won by a touchdown and a field goal. So instead of winning by 14 points, he won by 10 points in football parlance instead of by six points, um, which I might have already lost some people with my football metaphor there. But the point is, is like, yeah, he didn't win it went by as much as the most um, positive um, estimates would have been about what was supposed to happen. But he did win and he won convincingly and he won comfortably, despite all the noise that you hear about lawsuits and about. Um, you know, votes and things of that nature. You'll notice I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the president and his heretics on his uh, Twitter feed. I mean, he just, you know, that the, the we we've seen now who who Donald Trump is in every scenario, and he's already now it seems like he's planning on taking a paid vacation for the last seven weeks of his presidency, which is about the most destabilizing thing I could imagine. Um, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of an economic crisis, in the middle of a school's crisis, this guy's just out to lunch and just golfing every day, has no public schedule for like the third, the third of three days in a row as we're recording this podcast today. And I think that tells you everything you need to know about the Trump era. But anyways, what does it mean? I think it means that Joe Biden had a comfortable victory. I think he has a mandate to govern with some authority. Democrats net it at least two seats in the Senate, Arizona and Colorado. Did they win Maine? No. Did they win North Carolina? It doesn't appear so. Um, did Democrats win in Iowa? No, but they overperformed. And also you look around the country um, with the House races. Yes, Democrats lost a couple of House races, but they held on to it. And I'll just say this to my Democratic friends, and this is primarily I'm talking to like my, my class of Democratic political strategists. Do we think that Republicans, if they won an election, by 5 million votes and probably somewhere in a neighborhood of about a four percentage, um, you know, national vote total percentage lead. And they get over 300 electoral votes, which Biden is well on his way to doing probably somewhere in the neighborhood of like, I think, I think 300 or 305 or something like that, which is pretty healthy. And they net it seats in the Senate heading into a, by the way, heading into a favorable 2020 Senate, um, Senate map for Democrats. They already netted two seats this cycle. They could potentially, based on what happened in Georgia, even take over leadership of the Senate in, in with those two Georgia seats in a very winnable runoff. Runoffs are tough, but a very winnable runoff. Okay, And they held on to House leadership. Does any Democrat in America think that Republicans would be cowering in a defensive crouch if they were faced with that reality? No. And that's the difference between the parties. So Democrats who are scared of their own shadow today, really need to buck up and really need to understand what we're looking at here, which is a comfortable Joe Biden victory. And he has a mandate to govern. Now, how's he going to govern? Is he going to govern, you know, as progressive, as far left as some, you know, at near the base of the party want? Probably not. I mean, that probably wasn't going to happen anyway. If Joe Biden um, got 60% of the vote and like won by 350 electoral votes and it was over on election night, wasn't even close, like, Joe Biden probably wasn't going to govern as some like far lefty anyway. That, that probably wasn't going to be his governing style anyway. But obviously now people are framing how he won in the sense of whether or not he will govern with any confidence or govern um, with a brashness 
And I don't think Joe Biden was going to do that anyway. He likes making deals. I worked in the Senate at the time that Joe Biden was in the Senate. There are legendary stories about Biden cutting deals. It's funny to see Joe Biden as the president-elect of the United States because, and I say this with like a lot of respect, Joe Biden was viewed as kind of like a gadfly, like kind of somebody who was um, on the outer reaches of the mainstream of the party. Like he was certainly like a mainstream Democrat, but he was kind of viewed as kind of like an odd figure. Uh, within that Senate Democratic caucus on his ideas on foreign policy. Uh, And obviously he struggled in two previous presidential candidacies in 1988 and 2008 or the 2008 cycle. So it's interesting to see Joe Biden is now the center of the political universe and is the the 46th president of the United States. Um, It's probably something that a 25 year old version of me uh, would not have imagined I'd be looking at 15 years later. But lo and behold, here we are. Um, so in summation, I think what it means is Joe Biden has a mandate to govern. He probably never was going to govern as far left as some on the, in the base of the party wanted him to govern, but he can get a lot done. I also think what this means is that the, the agenda might also be dictated to him, right? Like he is entering the presidency at a time where coronavirus is the only thing that matters in the psyche of most Americans. It's probably along with like African-Americans mobilizing to put him in office. The second most important thing was a once in a generation pandemic that laid out in front of everybody why Donald Trump is unqualified to be president of the United States. And so I think Biden understands that there is a we're talking about mandates and we're talking about imperative for action. There's an imperative to act on um, on coronavirus. He's already, this week we've seen he's going to roll out his coronavirus task force and start regularly meeting with them and getting updates from them. I think Biden is similar to what Barack Obama faced in 2009 after he was inaugurated. His first order of business, the a stimulus package and helping to um, help the economy recover. And so I think we're going to see a lot of that from from Biden early on. That will have to come before any of the campaign promises and the things that aren't related to the emergency that we're living within right now. All all of that will have to come first. Right. Like all the coronavirus stuff, all the economic relief stuff that that Donald Trump, frankly, is just refusing to act on. And his emissaries like Steve Mnuchin and Pence and McConnell and all of these people who've been holding up like whatever, whatever you want to call these Trump years. Joe Biden is going to have to act because Trump refused to act and he's refusing to act. And I doubt he'll do anything else of significance because it seems like he's already checked out on the job of being president, even though he's got, I think I said seven weeks before it's actually 10 weeks left in his job. So we've talked about what happened. We've talked about what it all means. Now I just want to just jump into two other quick topics, which one of them is just really underscoring the remarkable nature of Donald Trump not cooperating. And it's, I, I think it's just really, we're not surprised by anything Trump does anymore. And so, you know, obviously nobody is surprised that like Donald Trump's a sore loser. Donald Trump could not, um, you know, find it within, the, you know, whatever, whatever bit of decency he has, which I don't think is existent at all. Trump could not find it within himself to pick up the phone, call Joe Biden and say, hey, you ran a great race. Um, I disagree with you, but I care about the country more than I care about my own self-interest. We know because we know Donald Trump, that's not what he thinks. 
He doesn't think like that. He doesn't actually believe that. He actually cares about himself more than he cares about the country. And I think even his even his supporters understand that. But to see what we've seen from him, I mean, just the dangerous, specious lies that he spewed last week talking about, um, you know, all the alleged voter fraud, none of which is proven, which just just so you know, let's just think about this for a second. OK, so if you follow the thread of like Republicans having a better night last week than you think they should have. So like in North Carolina, if Donald Trump is claiming voter fraud. So the fraud that he's claiming would have people split their ballots in a way that's fraudulent, according to him, because apparently the fraud only extended to Donald Trump. It didn't extend to like Tom Tillis or it didn't extend to Joni Ernst or it didn't extend to Susan Collins and all the Republicans who won despite him losing. Like, just think about that for a second. The, the fraud that he's claiming only only makes sense or only applies to him. It doesn't apply to like any of the other Republicans who had better nights than him. Like, just again, just consider where we are and consider what what he's saying for a minute and, and, and also like what the implications are of it. And you'll realize very quickly that there's just no foundation to it. And he's doing the same thing he's been doing to us for the last, what, 47 months, something like that, which is just trolling us. I mean, it's just it's it's gaslighting, but it's like more than gaslighting. And it's coming at a time where, you know, if Donald Trump really wanted to do anything to like cement his legacy, um, whatever you want to consider that legacy might be. But if he wanted to do anything to really demonstrate like what he felt about the country and allegedly the love he has for the country, what he'd do is like stop taking a paid vacation on our dollar and start actually going and trying to leave some things in good order for the next president. A job, by the way, that he doesn't even really seem to enjoy. The only thing he seems to enjoy about the job is the fact that he gets to be president. He gets for people to call him Mr. President and it shields him from some legal exposure. Those that really seems to be it. He doesn't actually seem to care about any of like the things that you do, like helping people and fit and solve problems and bring people together. All those like little Pollyannish things that we tend to find value in from our president. Donald Trump doesn't care about that. Um, but just him, the, the the historic nature of his lack of cooperation, I think you heard some very. Um, and sometimes I'll be honest with some of the media coverage, I do think it's a little overwrought, not because I don't think it's like bad what Trump is doing, but because I think sometimes the media gets so focused on the offensiveness to, to them and to like their sensibilities about Trump that I actually think they play into Trump's hands. But like, I think last week it's wholly appropriate for the things to be called out for those things to continue to be called out about, about Trump and about why he, or how he acted in the way that he acted. Um, and I just, you know, having a president go and essentially say that <laughs> that legal votes only, the, the, the only legal votes that counted are the votes that, that were cast for him is just something else. So it's something to watch, but um, it's just another historic level of disgrace for this, for this president. And, you know, really... All the Republicans, all the sycophants, all the people that are standing him up and that are holding up um, his, you know, the last days of his presidency, really, like, let's just call it what it is. The stink is going to be on them. They're not going to. So now we jump to 
our interview that I referenced earlier with Meg Murray, who is the president of the Association of Community Affiliated Plans. And we had a chat right before Election Day just about um, health care, particularly Medicaid, which is an issue that I think is really occasionally misunderstood. Meg dives into her association and why they decided to um, really elevate Medicaid as a, as a big issue, particularly against the backdrop of this election. Um, talks about uh, some of the legal actions they've taken to protect health care uh, for some of uh, the, the members that, that you know they represent and that their work um, stands up for and underscores. And also just a kind of high level look at you know, what's happening in the states with Medicaid and how that issue became so politicized when in reality it really should not have, right? Like Medicaid is something that helps primarily poor people, pr- primarily people of color, and it's something that the states welcome. It's it's free money, but it became hyper-politicized because everything in the Trump era became politicized. And so Meg walks us through some of that, and we talk about a couple of other issues as well. So I hope you enjoy that conversation, and we'll be right back at it. Today's episode, we're joined by Meg Murray. She is the CEO of the Association of Community Affiliated Plans, ACAP. Meg and ACAP are doing some really important work around Medicaid, which is timely for a number of reasons. One, um, we're obviously in an important part of the calendar where election season is coming up, and I think Medicaid is an issue that a lot of people are going to be paying attention to, given where we are. And also, um, there's some important news that will be coming to us in the next few weeks related to the Affordable Care Act, which is going to be in front of the Supreme Court. And Medicaid will be a part of that discussion. And we thought it would make sense to have Meg join us. Meg, thank you so much for joining. Appreciate your time today. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I always love talking about Medicaid. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, Medicaid is it's a politically contentious issue, but I actually think it's kind of a black box for some people. It's uh, and, and I've done this before and I'll beg your forgiveness if I like say Medicaid and Medicare interchangeably. I know they're not interchangeable. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about Medicaid that probably exist out there. What what just from your perspective and given the work that you do, what's the most, you know, what's one prominent misconception about Medicaid that it's it's important to dispel? Well, one right now has to do with whether Medicaid beneficiaries are working or not. in fact, 60% of Medicaid beneficiaries are working, and the ones that aren't officially working, um, about a third of those people have disabilities, so they can't work. Another third are taking care of kids or sick um, parents, and so the you know one of the things that's been in the news a lot about Medicaid is the um, administration's attempt to impose work requirements. But we say that that's a solution in search of a problem. Most Medicaid folks are working. Um, and so to be penalizing them um, for not checking in to prove their hours, uh, we think is really um, just uh, kind of, well, just not the right thing, not legal. The courts have said it's not legal. Um, the purpose of Medicaid program is to make sure people have health care. So by imposing all of these requirements and hoops they have to jump through, um, it doesn't foster the the reasons that the Medicaid program was first set up, which is what the court said, which is why they struck it down in a bunch of states. And, and just to help orient the audience a little bit about kind of Medicaid and our kind of U.S. health system, how many how many Americans currently are on Medicaid? 
There's about 72 million people on Medicaid, way more than are, than are on Medicare. And that's in large part because of the Affordable Care Act. It used to be that you had to fit a certain category of person. You had to be a kid or a parent, typically a mom, had to be elderly or disabled um, to get on Medicaid. I was Medicaid director in New Jersey for a number of years. And I remember a legislator calling me up saying, my, my brother just had a you know brain injury. He needs to get on Medicaid. But he couldn't because he was not yet qualified as disabled. And at that point, single adult men did not qualify for Medicaid. So today now, thanks to the Affordable Care Act, um, people can get on Medicaid if their income is under what we call 138% of poverty, which is maybe 18,000 a year. I forget the exact number. But, um, and in those states that obviously have taken up the um, expansion now, it doesn't matter what you look like. Um, the, um, that as long as you're a citizen, um, you can get on Medicaid. Um, so, um, so it's a much more fair program. It really now is a safety net for low-income people. Yeah, my audience will know, by the way, that the thing that you said there that'll perk my ears up is New Jersey. As most people know, I'm a, I'm a New Jersey native, uh, so I'm sure that was quite the experience in the state of New Jersey. I'd, I'd be just kind of curious about your state-level experience there, if you don't mind expanding on it a little bit. Sure, yeah. Um, I was in New Jersey. I was the Medicaid director under Governor Christy Todd Whitman, and um, she was there when we were expanding the CHIP program. And I was very proud to work for her when I left. We had the highest um, level of income eligibility for the CHIP program at 350% of poverty. I think New Jersey might still be the highest today. Um, so it's a very um, good program for people. I was really proud to work for her. And um, I grew up in that area. I grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs. So for me, when I went, I had worked here in Washington at the Office of Management and Budget and then uh, went kind of home in my for me to the New Jersey, Philadelphia area and, and ran the Medicaid program for about three years before I came back to Washington to run ACAP. Wonderful. So look, healthcare, obviously, um, it feels like, gosh, every election cycle of maybe the last 20 years has been at the center. I mean, going back to the Clinton years through the 2000s, obviously Obama and Obamacare, but you know, healthcare has kind of arrived at us again as a central issue. I know um, Medicaid being kind of at the center of your work around this, orient the audience a little bit to why Medicaid is so essential and so central this time around, this cycle. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, right now, of course, we're terrified about what's going to happen in the Supreme Court uh, two weeks from now. Um, there's a court case uh, where the state of Texas is challenging the constitutionality of the um, whole Affordable Care Act. There's lots of pieces in that which would go by the wayside if they find it unconstitutional, including the protections for pre-existing conditions. Um, but one of the certainly the biggest ones is that the Medicaid expansion goes away. 16 million people today have health insurance because of the Medicaid expansion. And um, if they say the whole law is um, unconstitutional, that's all gone. All those people do not have health health insurance. There's 11 million people that get subsidies because of the uh, what we call the Obamacare marketplaces. That's all gone. All those subsidies are gone. Um, there's rules that say that um, insurance companies can't charge you more if you have a pre-existing condition. They have to cover all um, the essential benefits, which include drugs and substance abuse and hospitalization, all that. Um, they won't be have to do that anymore. They can start selling what they did really before the Affordable Care Act, which was um, skimpy insurance. Um, or if they want to, if you want to buy really good insurance, you're gonna have to pay through the nose, and there won't be any subsidies for it. So it's really a, just a complete disaster in the making um, if the court decides that the whole um, 
act is unconstitutional. And, and this is really, I mean, the, the audience for Medicaid is really, it's a lot of, it's, it's Americans with kind of lower income means. It's um, a lot of older Americans, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah, about half the people who are in nursing homes are paid for by Medicaid. Half the births in this country are paid by Medicaid. Um, so, yeah, with 72 million people out of 320-some um, Americans, Medicaid is really just a huge piece of our health insurance pie. Yeah. So now your organization, you know, you you've sued, you know, we're talking about lawsuits and obviously we're talking about a Supreme Court suit, but your organization actually sued the administration over short term health care plans, which you call junk insurance. I think it's kind of popularly known as that. Can you just tell me, walk me through a little bit your lawsuit and what motivated you to file that suit? Sure. Um, So the Affordable Care Act, again, it um, it protects and uh, requires health plans to offer a full range of benefits, like I mentioned, including drugs and hospitalization. Um, It requires them to cover pre-existing conditions and not charge people differently. Um, But there are, there was, uh, it's not quite a loophole, but there were um, health insurance plans that were being sold prior to Obamacare and even in the first years um, that were to get people, um, to tide people over between jobs. And the Obama administration said that they could be sold for up to three months. Um, They did not have to follow all the rules of the Affordable Care Act. So they could be skippy plans. Um, They could charge you higher if you're a woman. They could charge you higher if you'd had asthma before. Um, They could also have lifetime limits. So they could say, we're only going to pay a million dollars a year or 500,000 a year. Um, But it was they were out there in the marketplace to tide people over mostly between jobs or if you got out of college before you got your first job. And the Obama administration said insurance companies can sell them, but they can only sell them for, um, you can only buy them for a three month period. The Trump administration came in and said, aha, um, this is kind of a little bit of a loophole. We can change the definition of short term limited duration from three months to a full year. And actually you can renew it for up to three years. So they were no longer short term and they were no longer of limited duration, but they, what they were is cheap. You can buy one of these, what we call junk insurance for about $50 a month versus 500, 600 for real insurance. And so on the face of it, they look really great, $50 for what looks like insurance. They're sold by reputable companies. Um, oftentimes people are confused though, when they buy them, they don't realize all the limitations. So all these things I've been talking about, that they don't cover pre-existing conditions, that they'll charge you more um, if you have a pre-existing condition, um, that uh, these lifetime limits, that's a scary one for a lot of people. You have one you know, bad incident in the hospital, you can quickly hit a lifetime limit. Um, they don't cover all of the, um, what we call essential health benefits, um, but people often don't know that, unfortunately. Sometimes brokers um, misrepresent them intentionally or unintentionally. They're confusing. Health insurance is very confusing. They have nice graphics. There's one example that we love talking about because um, it had people mountain climbing. They were healthy and hale and mountain climbing. And so, of course, this is insurance you want. It turns out in the small print, literally footnote 52, it says we don't cover accidents related to mountain climbing. Um, so, um, so they really want to limit, um, what they pay out. And in fact, on the plans that are sold under the Obamacare rubric, they have to pay, um, 85% of every dollar they take in out in premiums, but the short-term limited duration plans don't have to do that. In fact, in fact, they don't, they often pay 50, 50 cents 
out of every dollar. So, um, so our concern was one, from a consumer's perspective, these things are very misleading. People don't know. They think they're getting Obamacare. They think they're getting good insurance and it's not. The other thing is that because the people that are more likely to not pay such close attention are healthy young people. Um, so they're going to, they're going to like that $50. Um, and they're going to be taken out of the risk pool of the Obamacare, um, which means the people who are left under the Obamacare, um, market are going to be sicker and older. And so their expenses are going to go up. So it's, it can be a vicious cycle. And, um, right now people are starting to start to buy. I think there's 3 million people in the short term limited duration plans versus, 11 million in Obamacare. Um, so we are concerned that over time, more and more people will um, move to that other non-Obamacare marketplace. And again, it will be the young people and the healthy people, um, and it will make it more expensive for everybody else. And when these young, healthy people get run over by a bus or get a bad diagnosis, they're gonna learn really quickly, this is not good insurance. Um, in fact, there are cases in the, the with the, um, the Trump administration, they admit it's not even insurance um, in terms of different places where in terms of how they count who's insured and who's not insured. But um, so that anyway, so we sued the government over that. We were very concerned about it. And we said, this is not right. Um, the whole purpose of the Affordable Care Act is to make sure that people have good insurance and this undermines the purpose of the Affordable Care Act. Um, that was one argument. And then another argument was that they're supposed to be short-term limited duration. So we said a, a plan that you can buy for up to a year and then you can renew for up to three years is not short-term and it's not of limited duration. And um, so we hope that um, the courts will see it our way. Uh, we lost it the first round, um, but um, because they gave a lot of deference to the government in terms of what they want to do with their regulations, but hopefully we'll win the next round. And um, if a Biden administration comes in, I know they're, these, um, these, this problem with the junk insurance is very much on their radar. And it's something that they could quickly um, redo the regulation or at least start the process so that these things would not be sold in, I guess, 22 probably. Understood. Still here comes the pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. We're fortunate to be joined this week by Meg Murray, who is the CEO of ACAP, the Association of Community Associated Plans, Affiliated Plans, excuse me. Sorry about that, Meg. Um, and uh, we're really having a nice conversation here about Medicaid, about health care and the 2020 election and all things surrounding that. Meg, as I've been kind of just listening to how you're, you're discussing this, something that's just is always, and, and look, people who know me and know my politics, I'm a Democrat. I'm not going to make any apologies for that. But this has always struck me as so fascinating that this is an issue that has become partisan. Healthcare and Medicaid, and it's almost become, you know, the buzzwords, uh, you know, people start kind of choosing sides. And um, this strikes me as an issue that really should be pretty bipartisan. And it's an it's an issue that um, really, you know, it's it's coast to coast. I mean, whether you're in cities or whether you're in rural communities, etc. I, I, I guess just as someone who's kind of from your expert perch from your position, what do you account that to? How, how, how would you account for how this has become so politically stratified? Well, you're right. Um, it certainly shouldn't be. Um, and actually, it has bipartisan roots. When Medicaid was first passed in 65, um, 65 out of 140 House Republicans voted for it. And 13 of 32 Senate Republicans voted for it. So it's uh, it started out on a fairly well bipartisan basis. 
Um, and I think over time, especially with the Obamacare expansion, and as you remember, and I know you were involved in these discussions, that initially the law said that states had to take up the expansion. They were forced to take, you know, 90 cents on the dollar to cover these people. Um, and the court said, no, you can't force them, even when they're, I'm being facetious here, because they were being going to be paid. It actually was 100%, right, in the beginning. Um, but um, so I think that that was part of it, that this people didn't want the states being forced to take on this, um, pop, not even necessarily the population, although that may have been it, but um, at least they said it was the, um, that even if the feds were paying for all of it in the beginning, ultimately they would only pay for 90%. Um, for those of us in Medicaid, we know that that's a pretty good deal because in general, um, the feds pay for typically a state between like in New Jersey, it's a wealthy state, so the feds pay 50% of Medicaid, but in a poor state like Mississippi, the feds are paying up to 80%. Um, so in any ways, it was a very good deal for the states to be able to only have to pay the 10% to get all of their people covered. Um, so, um, but I think because of it being forced on them, it became even more politicized. And then, um, you know, and lo and behold, in 2017, when the Trump administration tried to again undo um, a lot of the Affordable Care Act, including um, making changes to Medicaid, so it would no longer be an entitlement um, by block granting it. Um, people woke up and realized, my God, half of the babies in this country are born on Medicaid, and half of the grannies in this country who are in the nursing homes are being paid for by Medicaid. And um, I think since then, it has been very different, and people really understand the important role that Medicaid plays, especially in rural states. You know, a rural state um, in, you know, Alabama and these states in the deep south, you're constantly hearing about rural hospitals closing, and it's because they didn't take up the Medicaid expansion. But in states that did, you know, there's, I mean, being a rural hospital is not easy, but um, they certainly um, will not have the level of uninsured people walking in their doors if they had done the, if the state had taken up the Medicaid expansion. What's really ironic is um, we did a study looking at the congressional districts and where are Medicaid people living. Of course, every district has people on Medicaid, but out of the um, top 10, um, um, they're the in the top 10 districts with the most Medicaid enrollees, four of them are Republican districts. Um, in fact, uh, Representative Peter King on Long Island, he is, has the third most uh, Medicaid enrollees in the country. Well, well and, and Meg, let me just jump in there because that's such a good point, because I remember when the kind of the, the Medicaid issue really kind of invaded the zeitgeist. And it was because you had all these Republican governors that were opting in to, to, to Medicaid and people, you know, even though that was diametrically opposed to, you know, really like the Trump administration's position on it and kind of Republican orthodoxy, what it had become on Medicaid. And I, I just think that's such a good point, right, that these governors, to your point earlier, they realized how much of a good deal this was mm -hmm. and that and that not only was it good policy, but it was good politics at home. Right. Right. Yeah. And, um, and there's the governors you always think about, like Charlie Baker and my governor, Larry Hogan. Um, um, it was Chris Christie, I believe, who passed the Medicaid expansion in New Jersey. Right. Um, but it's not just those blue states with the random red governor, but um, lots of other states like Arizona. And I'm sure that's partly why John McCain voted, you know, gave the thumbs down, I guess. Um, thumbs up to keep Medicaid, but thumbs down to... <laughs> These states with up. probably states so, with higher senior populations, right? Like yeah. in Arizona or Florida, right? You know, places like that. Yeah. Right. 
So, um, so I think people, especially governors, I mean, I think sometimes it's easier at the federal level to be just playing the politics, but the governors actually have to run a state that where they um, have to have a balanced budget. And they are the ones that I know because I was Medicaid director. You have the children's hospital CEOs knocking on your door um, and they're much closer to the impact that, um, that undoing the Medicaid expansion would have. Absolutely. So, you know, Meg, something that we haven't talked about here, which I think is um, so important, it's where every conversation these days starts. The reason why, as I like to remind people, I'm recording this from my, my living room and not in a studio is we're in the midst of a pandemic, um, a once in, once in a century pandemic. And I can only imagine how that has really shaped um, your organization's perspective on this. Um, I guess just help, you know, talk a, a little bit about what the pandemic has meant to your organization, to your work, and and how that maybe either complicates or maybe even clarifies the position that you've taken around Medicaid. Well, thank God for the Affordable Care Act during a pandemic. Um, again, um, people are losing their employer insurance that they can enroll in Medicaid. Um, they or they can enroll in the marketplaces and get the subsidies. Um, although the Trump administration made that more difficult, we had hoped that they would open what we call a special enrollment period. So if people who um, lost their jobs, you could. Uh, the ironic part is you could get us. You could get into Obamacare during the year if you lost your health insurance because you lost your job. But if you had never had health insurance at your job, then you were out of luck. Um, so we had tried to change that, but. Um, for our safety net health plans, we're seeing a lot of growth in the Medicaid program. Um, and a lot of that comes from, um, for states, um, the, the federal government in um, one of the first COVID packages said to states, well, we will pay more than we normally would to you, but in return, um, you have to keep, you can't throw anybody off Medicaid. Um, typically, people come on and off the Medicaid rolls fairly frequently, and it's not because they aren't eligible, but it's because they haven't returned the postcard saying they want to stay on or, they, um, their income goes up a little bit because they get four paychecks a month instead of two or three, something like that. Um, hourly wage for hourly workers, their income is very, changes a lot and it can just go up and down over the threshold of Medicaid easily. Um, but now in order to get the higher, what we call federal match, um, the states cannot throw anybody off. Um, so since January 1st, basically, if you're on Medicaid, you're continuously on. But that's been fabulous for people that it's one less thing they have to worry about. Um, and ACAP has been pushing for a policy that would be similar to this that would say if you're on Medicaid, uh, once you're on Medicaid, you should stay on for a full year. Uh, similar to how it works in um, when you have employer insurance, you don't have to ask every month to be on it or in Medicare, you don't ask every month, it's just you're on it. You, once you get on, you stay on. Um, in this case, in Medicaid, you stay on for a year. So um, so we're this policy that we had been asking for um, for about 10 or 15 years, been pushing this. Um, now it's in place, although it's tied to the public health emergency, it will go away after that. But so our plans are growing because of that. Um, our plans are doing a lot more telehealth, um, like other plans. Um, our plans are um, doing a lot of testing for those that are in the marketplace. There's no no copays for that. Um, and our plans are also, they've always been concerned about the racial disparities that we all know existed, um, but they are continuing to work even harder now to address those by addressing some of the issues that underlie these ra racial disparities, including that um, what we call the social determinants of health, that people, um, people who don't have ready access to good food or safe housing um, don't have 
good educations, our plans are helping to address some of those underlying issues in the hopes that it will make their health better. And, and how permanent do you think that, you know, some of the changes that you're detailing here, do you feel like this will kind of stay with us, say, after there's a vaccine or after there's kind of widespread, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the social distancing and kind of the world that we're existing in right now, maybe it goes back to somewhat normal. Do you think that the, the changes that you're experiencing, are, are they going to be permanent or do you feel like we're kind of over the, you know, we're over the line and, and, and we're not going to ever go back to normal, that this is the new normal? Well, I think some things like telehealth will stay. Um, it probably won't be at the level that we've seen it, but I think there's an understanding that that's an important thing, that we need to give people more um, choices about how they see providers. Um, for people that are homebound, it's a lot easier if they can just dial up. Um, for people that want to do mental health um, calls and things like that, it's a lot easier to do it from privacy of your own home or your own car if you're doing it on your cell phone. Um, so I think that that will definitely stay. Um, maybe it will not be quite as open-ended as it is now. There's issues about do you have to have the visual or can it just be on audio, um, those kinds of things. I hope that um, we'll also see this idea of having people continuously eligible for Medicaid for up to a year. Um, we have kind of a natural experiment to see um, how it impacts people and their, um, uh, their financial health. Um, so hopefully we will continue to see that. So I think some of the things will, will stay around. Thank you. Um, this is the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne, presented by Hit Politics Network. And we have been joined by Meg Murray, CEO of the uh, Association of Community Affiliated Plans, ACAP. And we're wrapping up our conversation. Um, we've really covered a lot here, Meg, and I think um, you've really educated the audience. I just, I think about kind of Medicaid, which again, like I said earlier, is really kind of becomes like a black box issue that I think a lot of people think they understand, but maybe don't really understand it. Just from your perspective, is there good news out there? Are there, are there things that, that kind of jump out to you? Um, that you, you think, you know, maybe we should spend more time kind of thinking about, particularly as relates to um, kind of the safety network that you do? I think that the, the main thing really is that the Affordable Care Act did what it was supposed to do in a time of pandemic, in a time of recession, if not depression. It was there as a safety net to help people. So people who um, lost their income, um, they could get on Medicaid if necessary, or um, ultimately, hopefully they'll be able to get on the um, Obamacare marketplace. It's open enrollment's coming up. Um, so we hope people are starting to do their shopping. And for those that couldn't get in in 2020 because of these um, issues that I mentioned to you that the administration did not open the door wide open, but now it's open again in um, starting November 15th, I think. Um, so I hope that people who need health insurance are looking at that and getting it. And, and most of them, um, especially if they're unemployed, they're probably going to qualify for subsidies. Um, and there's lots of people that maybe didn't even have Medicaid on their radar screen because they had nice middle class um, income. They had insurance maybe through their employer or their spouse's employer. But um, now, you know, the world may look differently. So I hope that they know that Medicaid is there for them. Um, and our health plans are there. Um, most people get their health care ultimately through a Medicaid health plan, which is what I represent. But um, the ACA worked. It did what it was supposed to do. So to um, it's almost mind boggling to think that just a week or so after the election, we're going to have this court case that's going to try and, you know, people are arguing to throw the whole thing out. Um, Understood. 
Meg, I know there's so many resources that, uh, you know, that folks are looking for when they're just trying to be educated on this and learn the latest. Um, I know, for instance, that you have a white paper that you guys recently put out. Um, obviously, you have your amicus brief that you filed and your lawsuit. Any Anything you would point people to in terms of good resources to stay smart on these issues, particularly from your perspective? Well, sure. They can always look at our website, which is communityplans.net. It's a little maybe techno-wonky for people. <laughs> um, but um, we also have a website called medicateisus.org. And that was um, a tagline that we used during the 2017 debates over repeal and replace. But it also has information about um, Medicaid and, and more importantly, how you can contact your members of Congress to make sure that they protect Medicaid. Understood. Well, Meg Murray, CEO of ACAP. It's been a pleasure to have you join, and I'm sure the audience really appreciates all the context you've given here. And we'll keep an eye on the latest with your lawsuit uh, against the Trump administration, your amicus brief related to the Supreme Court case, and all the important work that you're doing at ACAP. Thank you.